Chapter Three of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg by Abner Doubleday, Chapter Three: The Disastrous Second of May. At dawn of day, General Lee and General Jackson were sitting by the side of the plank road on some empty cracker boxes discussing the situation, when Stuart came up and reported the result of his reconnaissance. He said the right flank of Howard's corps was defenceless and easily assailable. Jackson at once asked permission to take his own corps, about twenty-six thousand muskets, make a detour through the woods to conceal his march from observation, and fall unexpectedly upon the weak point referred to by Stuart. It was a startling proposition and contrary to all the principles of strategy, for when Jackson was gone Lee would be left with but a few men to withstand the shock of Hooker's entire army, and might be driven back to Fredericksburg or crushed. If the Eleventh Corps had prepared for Jackson's approach by a line properly fortified, with redoubts on the flanks, the men protected in front by felled timber and sheltered by breastworks, with the artillery at the angles, crossing its fire in front, Jackson's corps would have been powerless to advance, and could have been held as in a vise, while Lee, one half of his force being absent, would have found himself helpless against the combined attack of our other corps, which could have assailed him in front and on each flank. There was, therefore, great risk in attempting such a manoeuvre, for nothing short of utter blindness on the part of the Union commanders could make it successful. Still, something had to be done, for inaction would result in a retreat, and in the present instance, if the worst came to the worst, Jackson could fall back on Gordonsville, and lead toward the Virginia Central Railroad, where they could reunite their columns by rail, before Hooker could march across the country and prevent the junction. Jackson received the required permission, and started off at once by a secluded road, keeping Fitzhugh Lee's brigade of cavalry between his column and the Union army, to shield his march from observation. At 2 a.m., Hooker sent orders for the First Corps, under Reynolds, to which I belonged, to take up its bridges and join him by way of United States Ford, and by 9 a.m. we were on our way. The first sound of battle came from some guns posted on the eminence from which Hancock had retreated the day before. A battery there opened fire on the army trains which had been parked in the open plain in front of the Chancellorsville house, and drove them pell-mell to the rear. At dawn, Hooker rode around, accompanied by Sickles, to inspect his lines. He approved the position generally, but upon Sickles' recommendation he threw in a division of the Third Corps between the Eleventh and Twelfth, as he thought the interval too great there. As soon as Jackson was en route, Lee began to demonstrate against our center and left, to make Hooker believe the main attack was to be there, and to prevent him from observing the turning column in its progress toward the right. A vigorous cannonade began against Meade, and a musketry fire was opened on Couch and Slocum, the heaviest attack being on Hancock's position, which was in advance of the main line. In spite of every precaution, Jackson's column as it moved southward was seen to pass over a bare hill, about a mile and a half from Burney's front, and its numbers were pretty accurately estimated. 
General Burney at once reported this important fact at General Hooker's headquarters. It is always pleasant to think your adversary is beaten, and Hooker thought at first Jackson might be retreating on Gordonsville. It was evident enough that he was either doing that, or making a circuit to attack Howard. To provide for the latter contingency, the following order was issued. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Chancellorsville, Virginia, May 2, 1863, 9.30 a.m. Major General Slocum and Major General Howard. I am directed by the Major General Commanding to say that the disposition you have made of your corps has been with a view to a front attack by the enemy. If he should throw himself upon your flank, he wishes you to examine the ground and determine upon the positions you will take in that event, in order that you may be prepared for him in whatever direction he advances. He suggests that you have heavy reserves well in hand to meet this contingency. The right of your line does not appear to be strong enough. No artificial defences worth naming have been thrown up, and there appears to be a scarcity of troops at that point, and not, in the General's opinion, as favourably posted as might be. We have good reason to suppose that the enemy is moving to our right. Please advance your pickets for purposes of observation as far as may be safe, in order to obtain timely information of their approach. Signed, James H. Van Allen, Brigadier General and Aide-de-Camp. For what subsequently occurred, Hooker was doubtless highly censurable, but it was not unreasonable for him to suppose, after giving these orders to a corps commander, that they would be carried out, and that minor combats far out on the roads would precede and give ample notice of Jackson's approach in time to reinforce that part of the line. When the enemy were observed, Sickles went out with Clark's battery and an infantry support to shell their train. This had the effect of driving them off of that road on to another which led in the same direction, but was less exposed, as it went through the woods. A second reconnaissance was sent to see if the movement continued. Sickles then obtained Hooker's consent to start out with two divisions to attack Jackson's corps in flank, and cut it off from the main body. Sickles started on this mission at 1 p.m. with Burney's division, preceded by Randolph's battery. As Jackson might turn on him with his whole force, Whipple's division of his own corps reinforced his left, and Barlow's brigade of the Eleventh Corps his right. He was greatly delayed by the swamps and the necessity of building bridges, but finally crossed Lewis Creek and reached the road upon which Jackson was marching. He soon after, by the efforts of Burdan's sharpshooters, surrounded and captured the 23rd Georgia Regiment, which had been left to watch the approaches from our lines. Information obtained from prisoners showed that Jackson could not be retreating, and that his object was to strike a blow somewhere. Burney's advance and the capture of the 23rd Georgia were met by corresponding movements on the part of the enemy. A rebel battery was established on the high ground at the Welford House, which checked Burney's progress until it was silenced by Livingston's battery, which was brought forward for that purpose. Pleasanton's cavalry was now sent to the foundry as an additional reinforcement. Sickles' intention was to cut Jackson off entirely from McLaws and Anderson's divisions and then to attack the latter in flank, a plan which promised good results. In the meantime, Pleasanton's cavalry was sent forward to follow up Jackson's movement. 
Sickles requested permission to attack McLaws, but Hooker again became irresolute, so this large Union force was detained at the furnace without a definite object, and the works it had occupied were vacant. While Sickles was not allowed to strike the flank, Slocum's two divisions, under Geary and Williams, were sent to push back the fortified front of the enemy in the woods, a much more difficult operation. Geary attacked on the plank road, but made no serious impression, and returned. Williams struck further to the south, but was checked by part of Anderson's division. A combined attack against Lee's front and left flank, undertaken with spirit earlier in the day, would in all probability have driven him off towards Fredericksburg, and have widened the distance between his force and that of Jackson. But now the latter was close at hand, and it was too late to attempt it. As the time came for the turning column to make its appearance on Howard's right, a fierce attack was again made against Hancock with infantry and artillery, to distract Hooker's attention from the real point at issue. Pleasanton, after dismounting one regiment and sending it into the woods to reconnoitre, finding his cavalry were of no use in such a country, and that Jackson was getting farther and farther away, rode leisurely back, at Sickles' suggestion, to Hazel Grove, which was an open space of considerable elevation to the right of the Twelfth Corps. As he drew near, the roar of battle burst upon his ears from the right of the line, and a scene of horror and confusion presented itself, presaging the rout of the entire army if some immediate measures were not taken to stem the tide of disaster. End of chapter.